Okay, I'm Dr. Celeste Snober, and I'm an associate professor in Simon Fraser University in the Faculty of Education. And that's in? It's in outside Vancouver, British Columbia. We have three campuses, but Vancouver is enough, I think, for your audiences, yeah. So, Celeste, you were speaking today about spirituality and the mm. body. Mm-hmm. And it's, in a way, often we don't put the two together mm-hmm. because we're thinking of the spiritual as the spirit and mm-hmm. we go internally and interiority. So talk to me about yeah. what you were saying. Well, I think really what we've done is we've separated spirituality and physicality. Like there's two domains, like body and soul, mind and spirit. We're very good at separating um, intuition and cognition. And yet deeply in our bodies is this, you connecting in your bodies. We, as I often say, we are bodies. We just don't have bodies. And when we can open up to the body, we open up to the heart. We open up to the whole terrain of the emotions. And when we open up to the heart, we open up to spirit as well and to be vulnerable and to live in that terrain of a a sense of openness to so much more. So it's both also inhabiting our own humanness, inhabiting also, I think, the deeper mystery that is available to all of us. That's really interesting because very often and with new mindfulness practices and meditation, Mm -hmm. you know, people are told to become aware of their body, but then... Aware of it to go in. Do you know what I mean? aware to go in. And it's interesting. I think our language informs our philosophy and our theology. And even in a a secular situation where we talk about, and there's a lot of talk about mindfulness in all kinds of um, pockets, and this is fabulous. But I often think, what happened to calling it bodyfulness? And why can't some people find a deep attention and inwardness when they're sitting still and they're meditating? But, you know, you can also be walking and be meditating or cutting carrots or swimming. And there's many ways that we can engage in contemplative practice. And so I like to see the sacred and secular break down so all of life can be a practice of mindfulness and a practice of contemplative practice that allows us to go into these kinds of flow that gets us out of this monkey mind that we're always zooming, 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 and we kind of settle way down and we hear and we hear the silences and we can empty, but sometimes we have to be moving to find the stillness. So it's stillness is really never stillness. Our blood is moving. So, so it's interesting how sometimes we think stillness is frozenness, but stillness is so much more. And that thing about, you said, listen the, mm-hmm. to the wisdom of mm-hmm. your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, that struck yeah. me. Talk to me more well, about that. I'm, you know, I, what does it really mean to have discernment, right? What does it mean to really deeply listen? And I think that we are in a culture where because we've, we're so much emphasis on the outer body, we have forgot what it means to listen to the language of the body, whether that's the language of the belly, the ache in our shoulder, or how we notice. Like, you know how like, if I'm, you're talking to someone and you know that they're saying that they're doing fabulously, but you're thinking in your head, they're not doing well at all. I can feel it because like 80% of how we communicate is through non-verbally. So what does it mean to train ourselves to listen deeply? So listen to those utterances underneath. And there, this is like a gold mine. We are carrying around like diamonds in the dust. And really, there's many ways to access that. But there's a sense of embracing our imperfections and embracing that we are not perfect bodies. And that what does it mean to inhabit that sense of like like feeling the wind in our on our face or, you know, having I often say, and what about means to play in the mud or going on the beach? Or even what does it mean to feel the weeping inside us? And all of that, too, 
um, is a place of deep honoring. And what would the world look like if we could just really say the truth of how we are in that moment? It doesn't mean we always have to tell everything on our sleeve, but it's about embracing our deep humanity. And our bodies are part of that humanity. As I speak, there's beauty in it and there's, there's difficulty. We don't escape. In fact, the only one thing we both all, we all know is that none of us are getting out alive. And the body is far more than just our physical body. It's the energy that comes through is how do we feel energetically through our body? How do we feel spirit in our body? And you said honor your tears. So I'm yes. going to ask you to be practical. You mm. know, I can hear the passion in what you're saying. Mm. So how would I honor my tears, mm. for example? Because, mm. you know, lots of people do cry. I mean, even at this conference, yes. men in particular yes. oh, I've noticed that. have it's filled actually, up. In fact, you know, my favorite favorite verse in the scripture is two words, Jesus wept. Once my son said to me, I think when I was going through divorce many, many years ago when they were little, they're men now, young men, he says, mom, what does it look like when a man cries? So he's growing up to see he's not seeing men cry. And what happens when you don't cry is that you actually, it's like you are blocking a well of information and emotion. And there's literal, there's biologists will tell you there is literal toxins that come out of your eyes when you cry. There's literal toxins. So that means actually it's not only an emptying, You f actually you do feel better, not in the middle of it you don't feel better, but there is a, a letting go. So to me, tears are prayers. It is the ultimate letting go. Um, and, and it's releasing into it. Sometimes I notice that in my own life, I'll have a stiff neck for days or something. And then all of a sudden, I just start weeping. And I don't even know what I'm crying about. And then I start thinking of, you know, my parents' death or losing someone. And it's a grief becomes all wrapped up into one as you age because you grieve many people that are that have left us and so we are hard on ourselves right they don't come in an appropriate time i used to think when i kids were young oh, i'll just call a babysitter and i'll cry for an hour then I'll get it done with but you know sometimes they come in the middle of an incredible teachable moment when i'm teaching or they come you know when, at the end of us i've seen this several times today and in that moment when they stop and they let a tear possibly come there's a complete hush and we hear and we say, oh, this person has this depth of humanity and they're sharing this vulnerable piece with us and that is so exquisitely beautiful. And we see it, how beautiful it is in someone else. But when we do it, we feel exposed. But if we could only understand that it's in sharing that humanity in, that, in those tears, to me that is incredible sense of deep beauty. Because men don't seem to be given the same permission. No. And then, on the other hand, sometimes women will say to themselves, especially in, oh. ac in the academy oh. and oh. academia, oh. I better not cry. Well, I better not cry. yes. In fact, many of us who have had to be these very high-powered women or had to take on these jobs where it's been mostly men or, and there's constant work, patriarchy comes irrespective of gender. You know, I often find sometimes men can be more open to that than women. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. And we think that the more, like, I just re I rebel against it. I rebel to the point where I practice, I feel like vulnerability is part and important, a part of teaching and learning and pedagogy. And I write about it. I live it. And I, I just wasn't able to keep my life all one in one neat package. I always envy those people. You know, I just, I couldn't. There was losses. There was divorce. There was people dying. There, And there's incredible beauty. So I think it's another way we're colonized. We're colonized against our tears. Mm -hmm. And if we don't access our tears, we don't access our ecstasy. 
we don't access our joy. And there's such deep joy available to us as a human being. I really do believe we need both. You know, we stop our tears. I think the other thing, we stop our grief. I think we get sick. We literally get sick. Which would tie into the body. Yes, would tie into the bodies. And we need to release that. Like how many cancers, I mean, you don't get cancer because you don't grieve, but stress in the body creates a system where we are not able to do what we need to do is just heal. And unlocked grief, people are walking around with grief in their bodies and don't even know because there's no permission. In our culture, in most Western culture, it's like, okay, oh, someone died and in a week you get over it. Or it couldn't be just a death. It could be a loss of a relationship or a loss of a limb or a sickness or just a deep loss. Who knows? As you said today, which also struck me, that we have within us a longing. We're never yes. fully fulfilled. And no. yet there's this expectation of, oh, yes. well, when I get to here, I'll have it. And, we, have it all. and we don't. I think it's a sense of making peace and embracing our longings and embracing that we don't ever completely get there. Because as soon as I get in one place, something else may happen. In part of our longing, I really love this sense of longing is in belonging. And belonging, the word is to be in longing. And so part of what means to be human is to be in longing and that whether that means I'm longing for my lunch or longing for the ineffable for the mystery for God for or communion and with another human being or just a connection whatever that means it doesn't always necessarily have to be fulfilled and sometimes it is but as soon as it is like as soon as I eat my lunch I'm going to be hungry now for dinner right so it's part of being human and I think about that psalm, all my longings lie open before you. Yes. Another thing that you spoke about today was spiritual direction or spiritual accompaniment, mm-hmm. um, which is growing in Ireland and the mm-hmm. Jesuits around mm-hmm. the world actually mm-hmm. train mm-hmm. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I liked what you said was the role of spiritual direction. Mm-hmm. Well, years ago, I taught in spiritual direction in a program that was connected to the Vancouver School of Theology. And I've always sensed that what um, is important in spiritual direction as well is that deep attentiveness, holding that space, a ministry of presence. But that is very embodied. And to be present in your body means to be really uh, attuned to all of the fine nuances. And so how do we train our bodies to be in them and rather not just to be like they're objects apart from us, you know, that we're bullying them. So this is, I say, it's like a free GPS. It's the body a, is. The body yeah. is a free GPS. And, and it's a, the body is a spiritual director. If we listen, we will know. But it's the paying attention, right? And so interestingly enough, particularly in in a Christian tradition, the body, it's an incarnational faith of all religions. Who could celebrate that more? That Christ comes in a body and death is in the body and resurrection is in the body. I mean, it's right there. And yet it is and gift, so because often it's, And it is not about Christianity. It's an interpretation of scriptures through certain Neoplatonic or Platonic mm-hmm. or Greek or lenses where it's dualistic. But that's not the scriptures. And that's, to me, not spirit. It's safer. It's safe. Why do you, people are obsessed with the sexual issues around in the church? And this isn't just the Catholic Church. It's all over. And it doesn't even have to be the church. It could be Buddhist. It could be... Because we split off. So we could be totally split. We could be totally doing one thing and doing something else because we are not integrated. We are not honoring the own, our own vulnerability. And I don't mean it means that we have to not have celibacy or not celibacy, but we have been trained as human beings that we split off from the body. So we need to befriend what has been given us as one of our deepest gifts, the, our gift of life, and not bully 
to our gift of life. And here it is. Yeah, you, you said that we often bully the body. We bully the body because we don't like it. Because I get up in the morning and, oh my goodness, my stomach isn't a Pilates flat stomach, you know? So I have a performance piece about the role where I actually talk about how I got a role implant because <laughs> I want a role implant because, isn't it, you know, I mean, we don't, it doesn't matter now. If you're a woman or a man, you're constantly go to the grocery store. You just, all you wanted to do was pick up a bag of apples. But no, you have to see so many people looking so fit and knew that means you're not fit. Or, so we bully ourselves when and then we wrinkle. You know, I went to recently, I, I went to get a manicure. Well, they're all, they're trying to tell me, well, you really should get some cream for your face and you should get some laser for your face because you have wrinkles. And I said, I worked hard for my wrinkles. <laughs> I've worked really hard for them. I'm proud of them. Of course, they're all young and they're 30 and 25 and 20, you know, and, I, and I'm like, so what is it about that we can never embrace? And so what we do is like we would never bully like a child that way. We would never bully a friend that way. Like we wouldn't have, I'm having for coffee, you know, like, oh, you look awful. You've got the ring. But this is what we do. We have a lot of internal dialogue. That internal dialogue that was always like running free spirited in our bodies is hurting us. And it doesn't allow us to be present. And one of the ways you say we can respond to that internal dialogue is not maybe by getting into opposition, but by becoming playful. Playful, yes, because because we have forgotten how to play. You know, many of us when we were young, many of us went into teaching because we loved being with young kids. Well, we got to skip and to jump and tell stories and make up things and run on the beach or, you know, play at the playground. And we're not conscious or not self-conscious of what we're doing in our bodies every minute. And then we become older and we're conscious of it and we forget about playing. And so I think many of us, whether we in movement or dance or yoga, or sports or like to sail, we begin to play. So it's like, how do we play? How do we be able to muck around in the mud so we can create or create, whether that's writing, whether that's dancing, whether that's making a meal, whether that's having a conversation that's playful or the most wonderful thing is to have a sense of humor. And, you know, why I love coming to Ireland is my, like, my Irish father inhabited with his sense of humor. And, oh, my goodness, if I didn't have it. Humor and human and humus are connected. Our humor is our humanness and our hum is part of the earth. And, you know, I think God has a sense of humor. And what came across, you made people laugh in your mm -hmm. talk. I mean, you're an academic, but in a sense, you subverted it. I mean, you became mm -hmm. the medium that I love, was the uh, message. I, you know, I, you, your my, papers fell, yes. you did a dance. Well, you, I, love, I love subverting the academy. The academy is so full of itself. You know, it's just exhausting. I've been in it for my whole life, you know, for at least 30 years, like professionally teaching in some form or the other. And why do we think scholarship has to be linear and boring? Just sit in chairs or not even just sit in chairs. It just we think it has to be a certain way. Well, scholarship can be artful. Scholarship can be aesthetic. Scholarship can be inspiring. And, and it doesn't mean that any other people are not inspiring. I live in this world. You have to do it a certain way. Who says scholarship, the, the root of the word scholar is to, in some ways to be contemplative and to look at things in a new way. Why are we so afraid to present our work in a new way? We sh we, life is short. If we can't have fun and with what we're doing. So I, I 
enjoy that. And I just do it because that's who I am. But and I've created a whole, you know, career out of it in some ways and allowed for different methodologies and, and embracing that. But I've had to also publish up my yin yang and make sure I publish all this. You know, I can't publish or perish. Oh, yourself. it is publish or perish. And in my in a research one university, it's all about what you produce. And does yes. it take a toll on you carving out that other way of doing or does I, it, in, yeah. you know, enrich you? Well, I've never written anything I haven't been passionate about. And I love to write and I've learned to write in the way that I dance. So writing to me is, is an act of love. I mean, I don't always love editing um, and fitting into the right APA and footnote style, or whatever, but I've loved that and I'm fortunate. But it has taken a toll out of me. The Academy takes a toll because there's a lot of toxicity in it. And I think there's a lot of times people are in places of leadership that do not have a deep and vital inner life. And we get lost in it. We get lost about what's really important. And I get lost in it because it's highly competitive and just to survive if you want to stay in it and I'm part of it's just survival too so it, it takes a toll any institution takes a toll so we have to be remembered so my body allows me to remember how do I stay true to my deep passion and my calling in my life so paying attention allows me to do that but it's not easy I don't think for anyone really and you voted to come into Ireland. Your mother is Armenian my and she fled yeah. the massacre. My, in mother was, my mother was just a baby. She was born in 1912 in Armenia. Of course, it now historic Armenia is in Turkey now because of the genocide. But yes, and so she was um, really a, a first, she was first generation. And it had made a huge mark on her. And I don't even think I understood that even till now. And of course, my mother would tell my father all the time, well, you don't understand, you know, in her Boston accent, you know, you don't understand me, Frank, because you're not Armenian, you're Irish. That's your problem. But, you know, the Irish have suffered so deeply. And there's such a connection between Ireland and Armenia. It fascinates me when I visited both countries that, that the stones, you know, the Hachkars in Armenia are similar to the stones here. And right now, actually, there's an exhibit in Dublin. I wanted to go, but I can't get there, about the crosses of Ireland and the uh, crosses of Armenia and the parallels. And it fascinates me that um, there's, there's... Synergy is interesting. Yes, cross. cultures with great passion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes. And you've written, and just to give a plug to your book, because mm. you read from a few of your poems, mm. are very beautiful. Mm. What is your poetry book called? It's Sorry. a book of essays that I integrate poetry, because it's really important to me to integrate poetry as poetic inquiry as part of... It's a, a book called Embodied Inquiry, Writing, Living, and Being Through the Body. And it really kind of is a culmination of the scholarship that I've done around embodied ways of inquiry for the last 20 years. But it's written to a wider audience rather than just an academic audience. So that it's a very invitational. So it's like in some ways that you could just really be inspired by it than rather than just being in a more academic article. So yeah. people can get that online, I can they? Yeah, Embodied it's, Inquiry. Yeah, in spring or published, but Amazon.com. Yeah, just go into Amazon.com. Yeah. I guess. It's been a pleasure talking to you Oh, thank to you, you so much. It's thank been delightful. My pleasure. Thanks very much.